The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I want to reflect with you this morning on some basic structures in biblical soteriology. Surprised? (laughs) Particularly the resurrection of Christ and justification. And I offer these reflections for your edification in Christ. It seems fitting to probe these topics of resurrection and justification on Reformation Day. Seems properly contextual. I would say. Where then should I begin? Perhaps there's no better place to begin in terms of soteriology than where Calvin, following Paul, began, namely a clear affirmation that all saving benefits of the gospel are given to believers only in terms of spirit-wrought faith union with the crucified and resurrected Christ of Scripture. Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians and believers more generally that they have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Every blessing in the spirit that can be given in this age is a present possession of the church in Christ Jesus. A little reflection sustains this quite convincingly. Believers are elected and predestined in him, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. They die and rise with and in Christ, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Are called in Christ, regenerated in Christ, justified in Christ, sanctified in Christ, persevere in Christ, die in Christ, and will be raised and glorified in Christ. Believers are united to Christ, to his person, but more specifically to his person as crucified and raised. Therefore, union with Christ involves this, a replication in the structure of the believer's life experience of what occurred previously in the life experience of Christ, namely death and resurrection. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6, I think, proves particularly instructive along these lines. And perhaps its most fundamental structure, Paul presents the believer's personal experience of salvation as being made alive together with Christ and being raised with Christ and seated with Christ in heavenly places. As Paul elsewhere in Romans 16, 7, affirms a before and an after in the believer's life experience when it comes to union with Christ. So he presents a most basic transition, the most basic one conceivable in terms of Christian experience, a transition from death in sin and trespass, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, to resurrection life in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. 
And Ephesians 2.6 amplifies the point that the life that is given to believers in Christ has an intrinsically resurrection structure to it. He raised us up and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Union with Christ replicates in the believer's life experience the baseline pattern that occurs in Christ's own life experience, death and resurrection. This critical point that I believe governs Paul's soteriology becomes transparent when we read Ephesians 2, 5 through 6 in light of Ephesians 1, 19 through 20. As Christ was dead on account of believers' trespasses, reckoned as his own, 120. So the believer, prior to union with Christ, was dead in trespasses, 2.5. As Christ was raised from the dead, 120. So also the believer is raised up together in Christ Jesus, 2.6. As the resurrected Christ is seated at God's right hand in the heavenlies, 120, so also the believer is seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, 2.6. What obtains in the life experience of Christ as resurrected and seated in the heavenlies pertains to the church's life experience in union with Christ. And this principle of replication explains the resurrection structure of union with Christ. It is the resurrection life in Christ that is the very resurrection life of Christ that believers possess in union with him. What implications might this have for other aspects of biblical soteriology? Let me suggest one. Jesus' resurrection as his justification, referred to in 1 Timothy 3.16, is paradigmatic for the justification of believers who by faith are united to him and justified in him. In our remaining time, let me elaborate that point. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul confesses this. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, justified, vindicated in the spirit. Jesus' appearance in the flesh accents his identification with humanity in its weakness and frailty and gives expression to his assumption of human nature in its sub-eschatological and sinless mode of existence. To speak of Christ as justified in the spirit invokes his relation to the spirit-wrought act of recreation that dawns in his bodily resurrection. In the first stanza of this poem in verse 16, Paul therefore lays bare the eschatological character of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus, as resurrected, is identified not with the fleshly, weak, and provisional order, but becomes a participant in the pneumatic order of glory and imperishability, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49. And this is true of Christ, not only as resurrected, but as justified in his resurrection. 
the eschatology of Jesus' resurrection therefore sheds a great deal of light on the nature of his justification. Just as Jesus is raised to an eschatological order, never again to return to the frail, provisional, and transitory, so also with respect to the justifying aspect of his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection as his justification places him as second Adam and Messiah permanently beyond probation and in full possession of eschatological righteousness. His justification in the spirit is an irreversible and declarative act that demonstrates his eschatological righteousness. It's critical then that we grasp the following point. The resurrection of Jesus requires his justification. This is so because the judicial verdict of justification alone answers to the judicial verdict of condemnation that he bore as a substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of his people. The resurrection of Christ signals an eschatological reversal of the condemnation that he suffered in his death on the cross. As Voss incisively observes, the resurrection of Christ annulled the sentence of condemnation. The reality of Jesus' condemnation demands that his resurrection include a justifying aspect. Just as Jesus was truly condemned in his death, so he was truly justified in his resurrection. And this is a fundamental facet of the mystery of godliness, a basic element of the gospel itself. Just as Paul in Romans 1, 3 through 4, can summarize the gospel in terms of the humiliation and resurrection of the Son of God, so he can summarize a central strand of the mystery of godliness in terms of the humiliation and justification of the Son of God. It is along these lines, then, that we can understand quite naturally how Paul can reason in Romans 4.25 that Christ was delivered over for our trespasses, but raised for our justification. If Jesus were not justified until the time point of his resurrection, and if his resurrection is a solidaric event that co-implicates his people as it comprehends them within it, then clearly Jesus' resurrection has unique relevance for the justification of believers. Therefore, it is insufficient for Jesus merely to shed his blood for the justification of believers, Romans 5, 9. Why? Because Jesus' eschatological acquittal is tethered to his resurrection from the dead. Paul simply combines in Romans 4.25 the twin notions of Jesus' resurrection as his justification and Jesus' resurrection as a solidaric event that includes believers in its compass. And the result is that Jesus rises not only as the justified one, but for the justification of believers as well. And this formulation anticipates 
the solidaric roles that are played by the two Adams in Romans 5, 12 through 19. Gerhardus Voss comments in detail on this passage in a sermon entitled The Joy of Resurrection Life in his uh, book of sermons, Grace and Glory, which should be added to your devotional reading list if it's not already. Voss argues that the resurrection of Christ, quote, stands in the center of the gospel as a gospel of justification or deliverance from the guilt of sin. And he observes that, quote, by raising Christ from the dead, God as the supreme judge set his seal to the absolute perfection and completeness of his atoning work. The resurrection is a public announcement to the world that the penalty of death has been borne by Christ to its bitter end and that in consequence the dominion of guilt has been broken. The curse annihilated forevermore. End quote. In the resurrection of Christ, his bodily resurrection in history from the dead. When you grasp this fact so basic to the gospel, you begin to understand the mystery of godliness. The resurrection of Christ as his justification is paradigmatic for the justification of all believers in union with Christ. What does this mean for you as believers in Christ? Behold Christ who was justified in the spirit by his resurrection from the dead. Behold him in faith. Behold, Christ was raised for your justification, and you by faith alone are justified in Christ, the resurrected and righteous Son of God. Let us confess then together with those who have gone before us and sought to reform Christ's church by the light of Holy Scripture. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed is the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mystery of godliness. We thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ and for its open and public and eschatological display in his resurrection from the dead. We praise you and thank you for this time together and ask that you would bless us as we meditate by faith on this great mystery of godliness found in our crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.